Welcome, everyone, to Strictly JoJo, a podcast dedicated to JoJo's bizarre adventure. My name is Courtney. This is episode 52, and we're reviewing part three, Stardust Crusaders, The Devil. As always, there'll be spoilers for this episode and anything that's happened in the JoJo anime. We are here at the Polnareff episode that we talked pretty heavily about in the previous episode. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get into it, but for those who listened to the previous episode, you'll recall that we talked extensively about how the episode around strength is, I don't know, it has those like horror, but like suspense eerie vibes. And then this episode has more of those slasher film kind of vibes. And rewatching it, I'm like, yeah, it definitely does. Yeah, I think I mentioned, like, I didn't remember much from this episode, but rewatching it for this review, it, it definitely shifts from the eerie horror film vibes to, I think the best comparison for this episode is to compare it to, to Chucky, right? Yeah. Obviously with the doll that goes around and attacks Polnareff and just gives him a bad time. And they just really amped up like the gratuitous amounts of blood and gore with this episode too. Like there were parts that just made me physically wince. <laughs> um, so that was a drastic change of tone and and scenery from episode seven. So yeah, look forward to lots of talk around the blood and gore in this episode. But before we jump into that, we want to take a second to recognize three new patrons for the Strictly series. Three patrons for part three. Yeah, it was a very big surprise. Um, I think within the span of a few days, we had three folks join us on Patreon. And needless to say, you and I were very surprised and very appreciative and very ecstatic. Um, So we want to make sure that we recognize all three of them because not only are they amazing patrons now, but they are also members of our Discord. Yes, very active members of our Discord. And so... We are very glad to have them all as patrons. So a big thank you to Gwellar, The Big Yikes, and Hernstrom for your support. You each are definitely a cut above the rest. (laughs) Very appropriate for this episode. But yes, thank you guys. We appreciate it. We appreciate all of our patrons. Um, You guys mean the world to us. And if you would like to support the show and get access to things like our bonus episodes, our pre-show, our show schedules, where you can see what's upcoming on Strictly JoJo, including, you know, when we're going to start that Stone Ocean review series, head over to patreon.com slash the Strictly series. And equally important, happy early birthday to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you (laughs) very much. As of when this episode will come out, your birthday is two days away. So yes, July 20th, you turn the big three zero. Part three. Three patrons, three zero, lots of threes in this episode. <laughs> um, I, I know it's it's a particularly milestone age to turn in your life. Um, <laughs> I know, like millennials, you know, they, they just complain about getting older and older. But I, I am I'm very grateful to have been on this beautiful green earth for thirty years and have been exposed to the wonderful world of anime within it and to the wonderful world of jojo as well so looking forward to many more years of anime and jojo content 
And the best part of it is that you're turning 30, but you still love anime and video games and Star Wars and SpongeBob yeah. and all of that amazing <laughs> stuff. Like, I, I appreciate that we're in an era or in a society or culture, whatever term is we're appropriate. In a we're we in live a in a society. society. <laughs> um, where we can be 30-year-olds who enjoy these things, who enjoy our hobbies without, without having to feel like we're kids necessarily or too mm -hmm. immature like there's a lot of people out there who love anime and jojo as much as we do and they're in our same age demographic i mean you can never be too old to love anything that's true that's very true and i feel like it, it's it's synonymous with what you said like uh, star wars fans or even star trek fans when they when they were younger and now a lot of them are in their are like 50s and they still have that that love and nostalgia for those franchises. And I think for our generation, it, it's going to become the video games, the anime, and all, all that fun stuff. And obviously now pop culture has been so heavily embraced by like the public and, and the, the, <laughs> the normie community as a whole that it's, it's becoming more widely accepted. But yeah, I guess... It's it's a great time to be 30 years old then. <laughs> it's weird to think that in 10, 20 years, we're going to be the Star Wars fans of today, like the old school Star Wars fans of today. People are going to look at us and be like, oh, they must be longtime anime fans. Yeah, I know that Star Wars fans now, they, they like to reflect on watching the original films as kids or, or collecting the, the toys that came out and the figures and just looking fondly on those. And then you'll have people like us who will be like, remember in part three when Polnareff was a kid and you saw his pee-pee? <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> I was like, at first I was like, huh? Wait, when did that happen? Gonna, but no, that definitely that's, did that's happen. The, yeah, the way that we're going to reminisce about we're anime like, or JoJo. Remember our waifus and their big anime titties? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like our reminiscing is going to be way less wholesome than some of the Star Wars reminiscing. Yeah. But to move our discussion back to JoJo, since you mentioned Stone Ocean earlier, there has been a major announcement since our last episode in regards to the release for the highly awaited part two of Stone Ocean. Uh, Netflix has announced that JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Stone Ocean episodes 13 to 24 will be coming to the platform in September 2022. I think specifically September 1st, uh, Yes, right? Thursday, September 1st. And this announcement came over the weekend of Anime Expo, which was right before 4th of July. I don't know if Netflix or like David Production themselves had a panel at Anime Expo, but I know that the trailer had just dropped, I want to say like the Thursday night of anime expo because we were with some friends and then i got an update on my phone saying that a trailer dropped for for stone ocean and so we can probably link that trailer uh, in our discord for anyone who hasn't seen it yet but man was was that hype and just getting to see jolene again and all the characters we've met so far weather report foo fighters why am i blank hermes Hermes. <laughs> Hermes, Hermes, Emporio, uh, and Anasui. Yes, we finally get more of Anasui, and there are a lot of big things that are 
dropped in this trailer. I was surprised. <laughs> I was very surprised. So I was watching it with you, and then I was I knew that they were gonna probably tease Anasui, right? And I've been keeping things uh under wraps because I've read part six manga and then they like he says things in the trailer, which I think surface level for you just reading them probably hints at something. But like it's just I'm surprised they put that in there. I'm really surprised mm-hmm. they put that in there. Do we want to talk specifically what it is? Um <laughs> I don't know. I feel like part of a part of us should just um keep the surprise for once everyone sees the trailer. But Well, then... if you haven't seen the trailer you could skip ahead. Yeah, that's true. Because it has been bit. out for, for quite some time. And technically, we consider trailers for JoJo as part of like spoiler territory. Mm-hmm. So if it's if if there's been an official anime trailer released, we co- we consider that fair game. It, at least that's yeah. how we approach the the first part of Stone Ocean. So I feel like we got to carry that on to here. Because why why wouldn't we want to talk in depth about the trailer? I'm I'm psyched about it. It's gonna be a really good part of the story. Yeah, so just fair warning, if you haven't seen the trailer yet or do not bother seeing the trailer until the part two of Stone Ocean comes out, just skip ahead maybe a couple minutes. But I'm going to say it right now. Why does Anasui want to marry Jolene? Oh, my God. Okay, I'm, I'm seriously so surprised that they put that in there. Obviously, I'm not going to say anything more than what was shared in the trailer. Um, but, yes, Anasui literally says in the trailer, uh, I, I'm going to marry you. <laughs> So I was like, oh, okay, you know, you'd think that you'd want to at least keep something like that because that's a big part of his character. You'd think that they want to keep something like that under wraps for the people who have not read the manga, like yourself. Yeah, I mean, I know you kept mentioning that Anasui plays a key part in Stone Ocean, and now I know why, but obviously there's still questions with what his motivations are for wanting to marry a Joestar. Yeah, and I certainly won't spoil any of that. And there's much more to his character than just wanting to marry Jolene. But yeah, I just I think especially in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, that's a very unique type of character because we've had love interests and stuff across all of the parts for the most part. I mean, even part four had like Koichi and what the fuck was her name with the hair? Yukako? Yes, Yukako. So it's like interesting that they would drop something like that because this is a love interest um, related to an actual JoJo, who mm. plays a significant part in that part of the so- of the story, versus like a Susie Q, who was a minor character but did ma- end up marrying Joseph. Yeah, I was gonna say, uh, it, it seems like this is going to be a significant romantic plot in JoJo since maybe part one, where Jonathan was courting Edina. You, you get a glimpse of that in, in part two with Joseph and uh, Suzy Q, of course. Jotaro, you don't really see at all with that <laughs> Josuke and Jorno as well. So it'll be interesting to kind of see things play out from that sort of storyline. Anasui is a great character, though. Um, I, I really, really like him. He's a great Joe bro. Um, he's fun to, well, in the manga, fun to read about. So I'm very excited to see him in the anime adaptation. So look forward to another great addition to Jolene's Joe bro gang. I think another big, a big why, a big question that I have around why they would put this in the trailer is the context they shared in the trailer around the bone. They straight mm-hmm. up tell you whose bone it is. And I'm like, bro, what the fuck? <laughs> I mean, you could kind of tell from the the last episode of, of part one, like why that bone was so important because you also get a backstory with Dio meeting with Pucci. 
So like my question, I think we even discussed that in one of our reviews too. But like my question is how did this bone survive if Dio or if Jotaro witnessed Dio burn up in the Egyptian sun? Yeah, there's still plenty of mystery that that they'll be able to share um, around the bone and everything. It's just, again, if anyone is like not as in tune with Stone Ocean, you think that'd be a fun thing to kind of drop, right? Like tell us about the bone, but don't tell us whose bone it is and let us start to theorize and let that mystery build around that bone and why Poochie finds it so important um, and why he's looking for a particular stand user related to that bone. But then like in the actual show, tell us whose bone it is and let that reveal happen organically. But here it's like if you've watched the trailer, you already kind of know what he's what he's trying to do. Yeah, and another thing that this trailer just drops is it has a headline, the time has come to end the intertwined destinies. And I remember just hearing similar phrasing when Stone Ocean was, was being promoted, like that part six kind of serves as a grand finale to this generations-long feud between Dio and the Joe Stars. And like just hearing that, it just it makes me think like how epic of a conclusion part six is really going to be, not just to to put a put some closure on Jolene's story, but just of the J- entire Joe Star family as a whole. Yeah, it's gonna be a lot to talk about, a lot to absorb, a lot to um to experience. I that's the mm-hmm. most I can say without, you know, sharing any details and I'm excited to see it on the screen, see it in the anime adaptation format, and then talk all about it when it comes back in September. Well, there'll be more. I think 24 episodes is not going to conclude the story, but you know, part two, part three, however many parts they end up having, it's going to be such a good discussion. But it just sucks that, you know, I think this part in particular would have greatly benefited from week re- weekly releases. And I know we've talked to exhaustion about how displeased we are and just the JoJo community as a whole with the way that Netflix has been handling the release of of this season or this part of JoJo. I don't know if we want to just continue ranting about it. Well, but, we'll make the best of it yeah. here at Strictly JoJo by committing to that weekly format as much as possible because when Stone Ocean does come back in September, we're going to, like the last part of Stone Ocean, we're going to jump back from weekly, or sorry, bi-weekly episodes, which is our normal schedule, to weekly episodes that we can talk about Stone Ocean every single week after the day, the, or not after the day, but the following Monday after the whole part two of Stone Ocean drops on Netflix. So yeah, look forward to our weekly review discussions on Stone Ocean. Last thing related to the announcement about Stone Ocean part two is that Araki himself made a celebratory sketch of Jolene and Stone Free um, in honor of Anime Expo weekend. So I think this was, he, or Viz Media had tweeted out uh, right around the start of that convention, um, Araki holding a picture commemorating the, the convention weekend. So we can add that to the Discord as well for anyone who'd like to see the photo. It is of Jolene and Stone Free in Araki's current art style. Um, So you can see that and the trailer and just be bathed in Stone Ocean 
phenomenon. <laughs> and if you're not a member of our Discord, the link to join is in the description. Join us because we have a whole channel dedicated to Strictly JoJo and all things JoJo, and we chat quite a bit in there. For this particular episode, though, for The Devil, we have a patron-submitted question from the one and only Jesse James. So they had submitted a question that reads, In this episode, curses are one of the themes, but in the entire JoJo series, what thing, place, or person do you think is the most cursed? So they added an example. Uh, for example, is Cheap Trick the most cursed stand to have? Are Joe Bros cursed to always die? Is Angelo the most cursed person because he can't greet back Josuke? Yo, Angelo. <laughs> <laughs> also because he's a rock now. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty legit reason. Um, so I, I love this question. This one really got me thinking, and I, I think I have a pretty solid answer. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I want to hear your answer. Oh, no, I'm, okay. I'm, kind of, I'm still thinking about. <laughs> who I would think is the most cursed in this universe. I think it's very appropriate for our current review series. I would say Polnareff, without a doubt, is one of the most cursed Jobros. So yes, I agree with you, Jesse James. Jobros are cursed in the sense that many of them die. It's like a 50-50 chance that you're going to die if you're a Jobro. Uh, but with Polnareff, he, he doesn't die, right? But he goes through a lot of shit. So he's cursed in a very different way than most of the other Jobros. He, I mean... In in part three, right? Like he's he's cursed because his sister was killed by a stand user. Um, he was possessed by Dio. He's you know on this hunt to find the stand user with two right left hands, two right hands, two right hands. Thank you. Um, he constantly gets attacked in the toilet, right? Like all the time, he gets attacked in the toilet. He's the butt of every joke, <laughs> which makes him lovable, but also you know that that's kind of like adding insult to injury. And then beyond part three. Um, well, no, and so then in part three, too, he he loses Abdul twice. That's rough, right? Like, he, he loses him twice. First, not literally, but kind of figuratively, and he thinks that he's dead. And then he loses him for real in the climactic battle against, like, Dio and the final st enemy stand users. He loses Iggy, right, who, for some reason only shits all over Polnareff and bites him and farts in his face and takes all of his gum. Um, and then on top of that, he he has to say goodbye to Joseph and Jotaro at the end of, of the, the show to go back to France, which isn't like a curse thing necessarily, but he has to part ways after this, you know, very intense journey that bonded them all together. But then moving on to part five, we find out that he does kind of re reunite with uh, Jotaro for a little bit. And he takes it upon himself to help Jotaro in his quest against enemy stand users and stand arrows and what have you. But then he gets attacked by a Diavolo twice. Not once, but twice. He loses an eye. He uses the loose, use, I can't talk, loses the use of his legs. And then he can't go up and down stairs, which also is a thing in part three, right? Dio oh, doesn't yeah. let him go up and down stairs. <laughs> uh, and then he becomes a turtle and he's bound to this turtle body literally for the rest of his life. Hopefully now that he's with Jorno, he can live a cushy life and have some goddamn peace and quiet. But holy shit, this guy is only trying to do right by himself and others. And he constantly gets shit thrown at him. So I have to say, Paul and Raph is one of the most cursed Joe bros in the JoJo lore. But I love him to death. Yeah, man. What a, a sad kind of existence. <laughs> but I know like like Angelo and even um, Cars have even more unfortunate existences than oh yeah Paul cars um <laughs> uh, but I, I i think it's it's nice that you know paul Nareff always sees the brighter side of life 
but I guess for my answer, it's it's more of a meta answer because just thinking of it like holistically as as a curse, I would say the Joestar family themselves are the yeah. most cursed people in this universe in this series because like it all just started back in part one when george joestar the first encountered dario and then that just set off the whole chain of events like we wouldn't have parts one through six and this diabolical journey of the generations of joestars if it weren't for that fateful encounter Right. And if it like, weren't for Dario Brando, <laughs> right? That's kind of crazy to think this whole thing lies with him because he could have just passed by that accident, right? But nope, he right. stopped. <laughs> yeah, and like the Joe Stars are just constantly bombarded in their family by unfortunate event after unfortunate event that it just makes me think like they're the ones that aren't just like cursing the people around them, like with Polnareff and the Stardust Crusaders. And then, like, even with part five and the Bucci gang and, and so on and so forth, like, they're, they were the ones, ultimately, who brought this cursed life upon themselves. Like, not to say, like, they they were the direct cause of it, unless like, we could talk about, like, who, who, who cursed who, George or Dario. But, yeah, I would say, like, again, you wouldn't have any of this happening if it weren't for that fateful encounter back in the 1800s. Yeah, man, it's sad. I, I think you're right. I think the Joestar bloodline is extremely cursed despite all of the good that they're trying to do. And that's why you always hear about the Joestar resolve, right? Or like the Joestar, mm -hmm. like, you know, Joestar blood courses through your veins. Like that's what Jotaro tells Jolene in part six. Is like, you're definitely a Joestar because you're wanting to go and, you know, put yourself at risk to save Emporio or to save other people. And I think that's the one, not the one thing, but a key thing that keeps the Joestars going despite all of this shit landing on their plates all the time. But thank you, Jesse James, for that question. That was a fun one. And thank you so much for being a patron. We very much appreciate you. So now moving on to our overall thoughts on this slasher film of a Polnareff episode. What were your takeaways from, I don't know, Discount Chucky? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of already voiced them in the beginning, just the the Chucky vibes of this episode, the, the, the heinous amount of blood and gore and splatter. I, I want to say it's probably the bloodiest episode we've seen in part three so far. Um, I guess the only other real takeaways I got from this is, you know, uh, we've talked about it already, Polnareff, like he really puts up with a lot of shit in this episode. And it's just funny because the the rest of the crusaders are kind of unbeknownst to this even though they're just what three stories uh, above him while all of this shit is going down um so like it, it's it's just terrible that polnareff has to kind of deal with all of this while the rest of the crusaders are kind of having a, a cushy time at the hotel and then the other thing that i just thought about high level is this has got to be one of the strangest entrances for an enemy stand user that we've seen this far in part three. Yeah, coming out of a mini fridge. <laughs> like, I I don't even know how, like, the everyone in part three are just muscular buff characters, including, uh, they call him Soul Sacrifice in the, in the localized version, which I'll get into his name, but 
Can imagine someone as big as Jotaro trying to fit into a hotel mini fridge, which, by the way, from our experience at conventions and such, a mini fridge is not that big. Yeah, it's <laughs> tiny as fuck. I like how the Polnareff emphasizes that the guy took out everything from the fridge just for him to fit. Like, there's no way you can fit. In that is that. straight up JoJo logic right yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> but what did you what did you take away from this episode eight? I mean, yeah, we'll talk more about how it's very much a slasher film, um, as we have been. But I, I think this is Polnareff's kind of first solo episode where it's really focused on him after he became a Joe Bro. So not con- not counting his actual introductory episode where he was an enemy stand user. This is kind of like it's kind of like the viewer's introduction to what Polnareff's life will be from here on out now that he's met the Joe mm-hmm. stars. <laughs> like that was a game changer for him. Wanting to become a Joe bro, it's like you, you got to take the good and the bad, right? Like you get to save the world, but also you have to go through all of this stuff. Basically everything that I just outlined uh, answering Jesse James's question about who's the most cursed person, that's what he's signed up for at this point. And this is like an extreme first foray into that where he has this doll trying to cut him up and not only just kill him but straight up torture him throughout this entire encounter this entire battle that made me wonder for a second like why is polnareff the guy who gets the short end of the stick in this crusader's journey but i guess like we'll see that avdol kind of he dies twice yeah <laughs> in this part <laughs> kakuin obviously he he succumbs to a sad fate um, in the ultimate battle against Dio. Uh, Iggy, too, like he he dies prior to that battle. Yeah. Uh, so really, like yeah, Joseph and Polnareff are the only people that survived this this journey at the end. And you know, and Jotaro too. But <laughs> Jotaro, of course. <laughs> uh, but like Jotaro, or Joseph was going like senile uh, by the time of part four. We know where Jotaro is right now. At least I know where he is right now with part six. It's, so it's like Polnareff, even though he seems like the most cursed out of this group, he didn't really get the short end of the stick. Like he benefited a little bit more than at least the, the two Joe stars in this group. With that all said and done, it's time to check in, dear listeners, as we slash our way into our synopsis and discussion for part three, episode eight, The Devil. The boys and their young ward Anne settle into their hotel lodgings in Singapore, but Polnareff probably should have requested a room change because an enemy stand user, Soul Sacrifice, has already checked into his goddamn refrigerator. Though our flat-topped Frenchman makes quick work of his antagonist, Soul Sacrifice swears revenge with his mysterious stand, Ebony Devil, before unceremoniously throwing himself off the room's balcony. Polnareff warns Avdol and Josephu to hold an emergency meeting in their room, but finds a part of his leg severed and the whole of his body tethered to the underside of his bed thanks to a doll possessed by Ebony Devil. Who knew that this was secretly a sadistic love hotel? Silver Chariot falters in his attempts to slice and dice the slicer and dicer, but gains the upper hando by using scattered mirror pieces to impale Ebony Devil for a Singapore skewer. Refusing to be a squealer, Soul Sacrifice sacrifices his soul from his commode control room causing Polnareff to be arrested for his resort ruckus and to request bail from the Speed Waifu Foundation. Elsewhere in Josephu and Avdal's hotel room, because they couldn't fucking bother to check in on Polnareff, the senior Joestar uses the enhanced powers of Hermit Purple on the television to learn a devastating cryptic message about Dio's next move. 
namely that Kukyoin is once again being a sneaky fuckyoin. And now onto our next segment of the show, is that a music and or tarot reference, where we document any and all nods, homages, and tributes that this extraordinary anime makes to the ordinary world of music and not-so-ordinary world of tarot cards. So we have one music and one tarot reference in this episode. Starting with the music reference is with the stand user, Soul Sacrifice. This, or his name is in reference to Soul Sacrifice, which is an instrumental composed and recorded by American rock group Santana. And if you remember from part two, Santana was the name of the first pillarman that was encountered by Joseph and Stroheim in Mexico. So a bit of a tie-in there. But to kind of clarify about the name of this enemy stand user, so Soul Sacrifice is the name that they use for the localized subtitles for part three. But the original name for this character, you can hear the Japanese voice actors uh, say it is Devil the Cursed. So Devil is an American rock band from Akron, Ohio. Uh, I think they were known for the song Whip It. Oh, <laughs> I did not know They're that. from Ohio? Yeah. And I think they... People pronounce their their name Devo, but I think for this context, it made sense to pronounce it as Devo. But yeah, I didn't know that they did the song Whip It. I didn't know they were from Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so you can hear, again, this character being named Devo, or yeah, Devo in the Japanese dub. However, this name was changed in Viz Media's translation of the manga, to avoid a lawsuit from the band of the same name. So per Araki's suggestion, this character was renamed to Soul Sacrifice, which again is the reference to that Santana song. Again, I don't know how the, the Soul Sacrifice being the actual name of a song wouldn't avoid copyright infringement like using the band name, but I guess it worked for them. I so. know, we always have head scratchers like that, and I'm always like, we need to phone in a... Uh, copyright lawyer to tell us why we can have certain names and why we can't but every time i was reading the subtitles i for some reason my brain kept going to soul society from From bleach Bleach. and we're not even that far into bleach yet (laughs) we're only 12 episodes in i just know about the soul society arc because everyone keeps telling me about that but about that but yeah i just like couldn't disconnect my mind from soul sacrifice and soul society it was driving me crazy (laughs) And then for me, it was just hearing something different from what the Japanese voice actor was saying, which again, Devo the band, or, or Devil in this case. And again, the word, uh, the name Devil ties in with the tarot reference for this episode, which is Ebony Devil. That is in reference to the Devil, which is the 15th card in the tarot deck. It symbolizes, symbolizes, it symbolizes... <laughs> Ravage, violence, vehemence, vehemence, I can't say words today. Extraordinary efforts, force, fatality, that which is predestined but is not for this reason evil. All of these are just perfect words to describe Ebony Devil's hack and slash nature throughout this episode. Other associations with the Devil Tarot card are bondage, enslavement, fear, feeling trapped, materialism, temptation, and unhealthy relationships. I think bondage in this case is especially meaningful when you consider how Polnareff was 
trapped by Ebony Devil under his own hotel bed. Um, last thing I'll say with Ebony Devil is that this was kind of obvious. His possession, the Stan's possession of a doll, may have been inspired by the 1988 horror film Child's Play starring everyone's favorite horror doll, Chucky. Wait, it was called Child's Play? It wasn't called Chucky? Yeah, it was called Child's Play. Oh, is there a movie? There's a movie called Chucky, though, about Chucky, right? Yeah, there are movies about Chucky, I think. Oh, okay. Called, yeah, called <laughs> I've Chucky. Seen, I've seen it, but I, I saw it when I was a kid, so I didn't know that the actual title was Child's Play. Yeah, and so that movie came out a year prior to the manga serialization, serialization for Stardust Crusader, so there may have been some inspiration there that Araki took. And yeah, the doll is stated by Araki to resemble an African shaman, which is kind of similar to how Devo or Soul Sacrifice, the stand user, is a Native American shaman. Now it's time for the JoJo meme rundown, where we list each new JoJo meme that appeared in this episode. And I have none. So that's the end of the JoJo meme rundown. I was trying really hard to find some from this because I feel like there's a lot of meme potential especially it being a Polnareff episode, but nothing jumped out at me. So if there is a meme that we overlooked here, please reach out and let us know. But what I do have instead, because I know we've been trying to keep tabs on it because we've talked a number of times about like, when do they stop using Jojo as the nickname for Jotaro in part three and therefore the rest of Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. And I noticed two instances of Jotaro being addressed as Jojo in this episode, The Devil. So first, Kakyoin calls him Jojo when they're both in their hotel room and Joseph calls them saying, hey, we got to meet in our room because Polnareff is being attacked. We're in danger. So Kakyoin's like, okay, Jojo, let's go or whatever the fuck he said. The second instance is pretty soon after that when Kakyoin and Jotaro go to Anne's room to check in on her and to let her know to stay in her room. Don't answer the door if anyone comes because we're in danger. She looks through the peephole and sees Jotaro and says, oh, it's Jojo. So those are the two instances I caught in this episode. So it looks like up until the devil, we still have mention of or use of the nickname Jojo. So we'll see how much longer that goes. Yeah, on to the next one. And so the episode starts off with Polnareff immediately getting shit on by a police officer, a Singaporean police officer who goes up to him and says hey you can't have this garbage on the ground you're gonna get fined 500 500 yeah singapore dollars singapore dollars um and polnareff's like bro this is my luggage and then looks smug as fuck as he tells the officer that and tells him he like shoes him away he's like she she it's just so funny how very much polnareff is on a high horse when this guy tries to accuse him of littering and it's not littering at all I like how the sound effect used when Polnareff is tapping the police officer's shoulder, it, it sounds like something crunching, like bones crunching for how <laughs> forcefully Polnareff must be pushing down on this guy's shoulder. Um, or, you know, it's just Jojo emphasizing very mundane moments with something not so mundane. With uh, great sound design. Yes. <laughs> so it just made the scene even more comedic. I would have liked if there was a continuation of the previous episode when Polnareff was chewing gum because I originally thought like, oh, did Polnareff just spit gum on the ground? Uh, and that's what the officer was pointing to, but it was just his his shoddy little satchel bag <laughs> that he called his luggage. And I was actually just, I was curious because I know that Singapore is really strict with maintaining uh, a, a clean environment. So they have 
kind of the most stringent laws of any country in terms of cleanliness. Um, there's the chewing gum law, which was instituted in 1992. And I was reading that chewing gum penalty fines for first-time offenders range up to $100,000, a prison sentence of up to two years, or both. Wow, that <laughs> is uh, that's extreme. So, that would make me scared to chew gum in Singapore. That would, yeah, that would just make me afraid to just do anything in singapore i get it though because those people who spit their their chewed gum on the ground and then we end up being the ones who step on it and you just feel it as soon as you step on a, a piece of like smushy gum on your shoe you're like oh shit and you lift your mm -hmm. foot up and there it is all long and stringy and you can't get it off the bottom of your shoes you can't get it off the sidewalk it's a pain in the ass so i mean maybe i don't entirely disagree with them for having such a harsh penalty for chewing gum yeah, and I guess it's it's just good that I know this law was made in the 90s, but that Polnareff wasn't victim to this law from his gum kamukai <laughs> incident in the previous episode. But he is almost victim to the littering law. But yeah, watching that exchange between him and the officer is so funny because to your point, like by comparison, Polnareff is, he looks like he's built like a brick shithouse. I mean, he kind of is compared to this normal looking officer and the guy gets very intimidated when Polnareff gets all smug with him. But then Anne pops out of the bush because she joins in on the laughter or whatever. And so she's still following them. Um, she says that she's meeting her dad in five days, but then gives them puppy eyes like, I don't know what to do until then. So they all agree to pay for her hotel room. And Joseph tells Polnareff, hey, go bring her with us, but don't hurt her pride. And what does Polnareff say to her? He straight up asks her if she's <laughs> poor. And I'm like, oh my God, Polnareff. <laughs> of course he would say that. He just can't read the room. Which I'm surprised because he he has a younger sister, so he should know how to interact with, with kids. I know like his sister's not that young, but still... Like you would have that sort of nurturing kind of personality with someone younger. Maybe he's just straight up with it or was straight up with his sister as well. But he's kind of the airhead of the group. So I'm not surprised <laughs> he was like, hey, are you poor? <laughs> <laughs> but when they check into the hotel, um, they end up getting four rooms because Anne obviously doesn't want to room with Polnareff. That'd be fucking weird. I don't blame her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think she'd want to room with any of them except maybe Jotaro. Uh, but Polnareff is excited to have his own room. Yet little does he know that this is the start of him getting into bad situations whenever he's alone for the rest of Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, especially when he tries to go to the bathroom. So he walks in and has that really cool shot, right, where like he opens the door, but it's from first person view. And you kind of get like this rotating, not rotating, but kind of um, like the camera's moving as if he's looking around the entry hallway mm -hmm. to his room. And then he kind of walks into the frame, but it still has that kind of like cool shot where you're almost kind of looking around the room with him. It was very brief, but very well done. Because um, I noticed that some of the shots in the beginning part of the episode looked a little rough, especially when they were checking into the hotel rooms at the front desk. I'm like, some of this animation's a little shoddy, but I think they were saving their budget for everything. For this one scene. Yeah, for this one scene. No, for everything that was happening in the actual hotel room with Polnareff. So I can totally understand why they may need to scale back on other scenes that are less important to give us more of that, that eerie, horror-like experience as soon as Polnareff goes into his room. Yeah, I, I can see that. I, I just thought it was strange at first because it was a little bit of like a, a choppy movement um, because I think it was that environment was mostly CGI. 
and then you have Polnareff stepping in. But I can see what they're trying to emulate to continue that horror film vibe. And he immediately knows that someone's in his room. And as we talked about, some huge dude comes out of his fucking mini fridge. And I, at first I was like, oh, that's so cool. Like Polnareff is such a skilled fighter that he can feel or sense when there's, you know, a, a malicious presence or if someone has like killing intent around him. But nope, he just saw that the dude left all the drinks out. That's that's how he knew. <laughs> I was going to say, because the, the last episode, they focused so much on the doll in the room, which I, I'm still not clear if if the doll is an actual like feature or accessory in the hotel room or if that's what soul sacrifice or devil had placed in the room to use as a as a contingency to attack Polnareff. I would guess the latter because I don't think for a Singaporean hotel to have a shaman like doll makes sense mm. especially because I think it's supposed to mimic mimic the like Shangri-La like the very high-end hotels cuz yeah. I think I saw behind the front desk person it said there was a sign that said like Shagra, which I think they're trying to like, without directly saying Shangri-La, they're trying to mimic that. That's my guess anyway. So I think he probably intentionally placed it in there because if you think about where the blood's splattered, it would be either the doll or his other option would be a lamp. So a killer lamp, I think mm -hmm. might be a little bit of a stretch. <laughs> so I'm going to assume that Devo put it there. Yeah, I think what I was yeah, getting at originally is he, he just goes to the fridge first, which is obvious because there is a man in your fridge but then doesn't suspect the doll afterwards for just being there because I guess it's kind of like a, a red herring in a way that he, he focuses on devil first and then doesn't realize, oh, devil might use this doll as a, as a way to attack me as well. Well, to that point, you know, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but when he's on the phone talking to Avdol and talking to the front desk, he does grab the doll and it's like actually holding it and looking directly at it. But I think he's so focused on the enemy stand user that he doesn't even think twice about this doll. He mm -hmm. just picks it up off the ground and puts it on the table and he's like, whatever. But again, it's like one of these things is not, is not like the other with this room. Like thinking of, again, the luxury hotel aesthetic is how would this African shaman doll fit with the aesthetic of the room but again Polnareff's an airhead so he probably doesn't see those see those kind of intricacies and he's just in the moment trying to figure out how to defend himself too well when devil comes out of the fridge and their their kind of you know altercation begins this is kind of where the the slasher film aesthetic starts because Polnareff I think stabs that he stabs him three times with uh silver chariot and I think it's in his right eye, his tongue, and then somewhere on his face, isn't Was it? it? Or his left eye? Left eye. No, I, I I wrote this wrong. I meant to say he stabbed him right in his eye, not his right oh. eye. <laughs> but you're right. His left eye, his tongue, and then somewhere else on his face. I think he stabbed him like three times. And that was pretty grotesque. Like, they didn't even try to censor that. They were like, here's the, uh, the sword going directly into the eyeball. But... They did do the same thing with the pen in the eyeball during the second episode with the when the nurse gets possessed by Kakyoin. Oh, that's right. So it's it's to be expected. Um, and then when the guy falls off the balcony, Polnareff runs to go look for him, and then we see a part of his ankle gets sliced off, just like a piece of meat, just falls yeah, down, it was like actual flesh. Not just like a piece of skin; it was a chunk of his foot. This is the first instance where I had winced just because like seeing that it, like a morsel of it just 
get chopped off. I was like, damn. Yeah. I, to me, I think all of this is, is definitely um, like cringe in like the squeamish way, but nothing so far in, in our review series has actually made me uncomfortable and squeamish the way the um, the carotid artery did from Carotid. Part one. Carotid? Carotid? Oh, yeah. Sorry, Rob. I know he corrected us. Carotid artery. Carotid artery. When Dio takes that fucking vein out of Joseph's or uh, Jonathan's neck and like wiggles it between his fingers, like, ugh. That's the only time I've really actually had chills down my spine, but this was pretty close. So then Polnareff jumps on the phone. He warns Avdol. He calls the front desk saying, I've injured myself. And for some reason, for some reason, he's stressed out on the bed, right? And he puts his, his head in his hands and he thinks to himself, damn it, these are brand new pants. <laughs> like, what the fuck? And the way they translated it in the sub was like a little convoluted, but he's essentially saying, I haven't even used or washed these pants before. They're brand new. And now they're all fucked up. <laughs> it's, it's similar to the gum kamukai scene. Where th- serious things are happening around Polnareff, but he just focuses on things that really don't matter in the moment. Like, yeah, your your pants, they they are ruined, but also your life is at stake right now, my guy. And hasn't he been wearing those pants since we met him back in yeah. Hong Kong? Like, it's been a while, dude. They were burning when, when Avdol just put the fire on. Yeah, he, yeah, exactly. While. He's been burnt. He's been attacked. Um, he has been, he didn't fall into the water, but he was like sucked into the ship, mm-hmm. like physically into the ship. Like things have happened. Those pants are soiled, okay? Unless <laughs> They're his, ruined. his satchel is just full of the same type of pants that he just switches. You know, like how cartoon characters, why they always wear the same clothes is because they have a closet full of the same like shirt or pants which is the case with draken from tokyo avengers yeah, when you go into his was, room <laughs> that was that was great tongue-in-chief or tongue-in-cheek chief <laughs> so then the doll attacks like there's a full-on slasher film onslaught coming on from this doll it ties um Polnareff up under the bed using the ropes going back to the the bondage part related to the tarot card he throws shampoo in Polnareff's eyes, pulls a saw out of nowhere, and then like ruck, rucks, wrecks this fucking hotel room. And during all of this, the employee from the front desk shows up to deliver the first aid kit that Polnareff had requested. And he knocks. He enters the room. Polnareff tells him, get the fuck out of here. And he's like, what's going on in here? And he's like, dude, I said, get out of here. You're in danger. And then the doll shaves his face clean off. Again, Ugh. seriously like a slasher film. Like the the amount of detail here and emphasis on this moment is pretty intense because you see the doll jump on the guy's shoulder. You get a close-up view of the razor blade like actually skinning and sawing off his face, off of his skull. Um, you see from the front desk guy's actual point of view kind of like his vision going down as his eyes are falling off of his face and blood sort of dripping and covering the screen and then you see him fall face first onto the ground but you do get a brief glimpse of like his bare ass no skin face i think it was kind of censored because it was pretty dark and blurred out but i mean you still get a shot of that no yeah this was the second time that i winced watching this episode Again, I know it's animated, but like I would wince even more if I were watching a live action film. But even though, like just seeing 
seeing that act of the devil or ebony devil slicing down like it sent chills down my spine and <laughs> and then you just yeah you just see just his that skin flap just fall to the ground along with the rest of his body like man you are in for a bad time with this episode and then you get the that laugh oh, the, from, the cackle yeah. yeah which just makes things even more unsettling as yeah this the rest of his episode just turns into uh, a splatter film and we learned throughout this whole thing that silver chariot is the type of stand that can't fight where polnareff can't see and that makes me wonder is that the same for other stands or stand users so like star platinum if jotaro couldn't see where star platinum was fighting could he still effectively use Star Platinum? Or is Star Platinum similar similar to Silver Chariot? So now I'm going to kind of keep this in the back of my mind as we watch the, the next few episodes and see if there's other instances where someone is not able to see what's going on and therefore they can't attack uh, effectively. I think before Silver Chariot enters, though, we get the, the commercial break with the eye catch for the stand stats for Ebony Devil. And so to just go over those briefly... Destructive power is D, speed is D, range is A, durability is B, precision and accuracy is D, and development potential is B. And I think the eye catch also shows a glimpse of what the Ebony Devil stand actually looks like from the torso up. Because I don't think we ever get a proper look at the stand. Devo, soul sa- I'm going to just call him soul sacrifice. Um, he he manifests it when he calls it out, but then Polnareff attacks him right away. So it, it's a very fleeting moment, I think, as it's still manifesting. But then it shimmers over to the doll on the desk um, to, to symbolize that it, it's currently possessing the doll. So again, this eye catch gives us the clearest look at its face, which it kind of looks like a a demented flick from A Bug's Life. Oh, I was like, what's flick? Yeah. <laughs> Here, I can send you a photo so you can see as well if my computer will work. And I think you can see it clear in the manga. Um, yeah, it still looks like a demented flick in the manga too. Oh, yeah, it does. I, don't, I do not like that. I do appreciate, though, that they have both the stand and the doll. Although the doll is just an inanimate object that it happened to possess. But it's still cool. I like it. Moving back to when Silver Chariot appears, though, and the doll is just hacking and slashing at it. Uh, at one point, the doll grabs the wine bottles from the top of the, the mini fridge. And if you notice clearly for or for any of those eagle-eyed JoJo fans, you'll see that the label on the bottle says Mezzanotti Topo. And this is actually the same wine that Zeppeli drinks from in part one. And this is that's what the doll uses to attack Silver Chariot. So a nice uh, little Easter egg to part one there. And I think this wine also appeared in part six at some point too. Uh, I think when we see a flashback of Dio, he's drinking uh, Mezzanotti Topo. So it's a very significant wine in the JoJo universe. I love that. I love those Easter eggs and those tie-ins. I I try to keep note of them whenever I can so that we can reference them when they pop up like this. I I did want to call out, I guess, 
a specific scene, but really just applaud the intensity that we're getting throughout this entire episode, especially compared to the last two episodes that had decently lackluster fights. Um, you know, we talked about how two episodes ago it was a one-hit kill. In the previous episode, there was barely a battle between Jotaro and the fucking monkey. Here, it's like you get a, a full-on onslaught from this this doll that's possessed by a stand. Polnareff, like, barely stands a chance the entire time. The The music is so intense. The visuals are just so, like, in your face, especially with this doll because he's just, like, such an obscene piece of shit. And then you have this really cool moment where Silver Chariot's on top of the bed just, like, flailing around, trying to hit anything to get this doll to stop. The doll if I remember correctly, kind of slides underneath or in between Silver Chariot's legs. And then we get this cool like rotating 360 shot around Silver Chariot as the doll is climbing up and then bites down on his shoulder or like whispers in his ear and then bites down on his shoulder, something like that. But the the cool cinematics here, I think just further amplify the intense battle that's happening. And to, to really keep me on the edge of my seat during a fight that's happening in a fucking hotel room between a man and a doll like that's that's the impressiveness behind Jojo's Bizarre Adventure where Rocky can take these very small scale things and make them into large scale battles or make them feel like they're large scale battles I was reading I think in the blu-ray limited edition commentaries that this episode was was pretty difficult to kind of put together and I think it was because of like trying to balance the the action and just how crazy everything was going uh but here it was just a very fluid way to show the, the action i guess action choreography of this doll and that's the crazy thing that it, it's all this doll that's doing all the, the bloody work here i can imagine that it is very difficult because you think about you know even if a, a battle takes place in a single location Normally, it's outdoors or in an area where you can have like big explosions and big attacks and stuff. Just make it feel grand based on the scale of things. But here we have a much smaller scale setting, a much smaller scale in terms of the actual enemy being a little doll. So, yeah, I mean, uh, applause to both Araki and David Production for pulling off a really intense battle in a really small space. And throughout this whole exchange, we have um, the... The Crusaders um, getting together in Joseph's room and checking on Anne and all that stuff. And to your point earlier, I think you had mentioned this during your synopsis. Why didn't any of them think to go to Polnareff sooner? Because I think at one point Joseph even comments saying how it's been way over five minutes and he's still not here. Yet he's the one that called you guys to tell you guys that he got attacked. No one thought to go check on the poor guy. <laughs> I don't know if they just thought, oh, he, he's fine. He can handle it on his own. And maybe it's because he was part of, like, Dio's dastardly disciples that he would be able to know how to fend off the enemy. But hey, you'd think you'd look out for another bro. You'd think. But also it's Polnareff. <laughs> I also want to call it one last bit of, um, I guess, one last piece of cinematic thing i don't know what i'm trying to say a piece of um like the visuals that i noticed and it was when silver chariot takes the blanket and wraps the doll in it and then sort of flings the blanket it does like the screen wipe as the blanket's falling and we transition from the fight in the hotel room to joseph's room with abdul and they're like chatting about where the fuck's polnareff yeah seamless 
Kind of like a Star Wars screen screen swipe in a way. (laughs) And then as the fight continues, I think the stand user starts talking through the doll directly to Polnareff. And he says he's going to bite his balls off. And then he does this thing where he grabs his bulge and thrusts it, saying, I wish I could piss all over the floor right now. And again, it just amplifies the insanity of what's happening in this moment. And this crazy ass doll who's running around like a thousand miles a minute and just wreaking havoc. And just, again, building up that intensity until the climactic moment where Polnareff breaks the mirror, can see above the bed, and can finally take control of the situation. The weird thing is, though, the doll is covering the entire room in alcohol, and then it stops for a moment, and you, you think it collapses on the floor, right? As if, like, someone said, Andy's here. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> From Toy Story. <laughs> and then it, like, it cocks its head back in, like, true horror film fashion to look at Polnareff and gives that spiel. Uh, and then it, it jumps up to hold that short-circuiting hairdryer, right? But you would think that the doll is covered in alcohol itself, and so while it's holding this hairdryer and it's like burning or, or emitting flames and and short circuiting and all the electric sparks are, sparks are coming out, like the doll would have been electrocuted and burned in the process too. You'd think, but you'd you know think. that JoJo you'd logic. <laughs> and then another you'd think moment is that Silver Chariot obviously spears the doll and impales its head. If if I remember correctly, swords are made of metal, right? Yes, actually, yeah. So <laughs> but why it's a stand it? made of metal, yeah, you know what I mean? Okay. Like, maybe that's you'd the difference. Think, you'd think. <laughs> well, another you'd think moment is um, when, to that exact moment when Silver Chariot pierces the doll. So we have Silver Chariot taking control of the situation via Polnareff, or vice versa, Polnareff via Silver Chariot, And then they chop off the doll's legs, right? And the doll crawls away. And it had, right before that, been pierced through the head. And the final blow is when Silver Chariot slices the shit up out of that doll. And that's what ends up killing the stand user. But why did he die from the last bit of slicing and not from when he got stabbed through the skull? Because Mm. if Silver Chariot stabbed the doll through the skull, then shouldn't that be a one-for-one amount of damage to the actual stand user yeah so we know he's still alive because mm -hmm. the doll's still talking as he's crawling away with his legs chopped off which i think in the bathroom shot the guy's legs aren't chopped off so i think those two are a miss there (laughs) yeah i think the guy's legs like his entire body except his balls are aren't chopped off because that's what polnareff said he would do um maybe silver chariot was just precise enough with his skewer that it didn't impale the brain the part of the brain that immediately makes you dead. I guess, but they did chop the doll's legs off. So I'm like, why is this mm-hmm. guy's leg still here? Yeah. But you're right. Polnareff is a man of his word. And when they showed the enemy stand user in the, the bathroom stall, they first show his crotch, which is intact. And then they zoom out and you see how like sliced up he is everywhere but his balls. And um, yeah, it's it's a confirmed death. I know we talked about this before. Like, does anybody die in part three? Does anybody really die um, or any like like basic stand users, or I guess not like the uh, the climactic enemy stand users, the more regular ones. Do any of them really die until we get to part five? Well, here they actually say in the show that he is confirmed dead by Polnareff's hand. Yeah, we've already seen a couple deaths this far: uh, the captain, uh, Captain Tenniel, and then Stray or what, what was it? Forever. 
forever. The, yeah. The but this is the first names. confirmed death because mm-hmm. I know it's ambiguous in those last two episodes. Here it's an actual on the screen confirmed True. death. And the police officers even say in the interrogation, dude, this guy's dead. He's dead. <laughs> but my last question related to the enemy standings are dying in the stall. Why is the janitor holding a hose just spilling water all over the floor? Every time I watch that part, I'm like, what are you doing? Turn off the hose. It's probably an employee who doesn't really care about his work. (laughs) I'm like, how are you cleaning? Like, you have a a hose that's just straight up pouring water all over the ground, and you're like knocking on the stall because the guy hasn't come out in a while. But, like, don't you want to stop the water from spilling everywhere? I'm like, he doesn't have to pay the water bill. It's the hotel. That's true, but he does have to clean up the water. That, too, unless it it drains somewhere in the floor. Uh, One thing I want to call out really quick is that when Polnareff has his turn the tables moment it's not the stardust crusader theme that that normally plays when a character or i guess it's more so like uh jotaro himself has the upper hand against his opponent it's kakyuin's theme that plays the noble pope theme and i'm kind of wondering why like polnareff didn't get his own theme assigned and then they just defaulted to kakyuin's but i think he doesn't have a theme at all i thought he does he probably did in the Silver Chariot episode. Maybe it was like a more sinister theme, and that's why they didn't end up using it. But here, Kakuin's theme, I think it it's probably going to be a the de facto JoJo theme for the non-Joestar Crusaders, because I think they want to save that for Jotaro himself. Although it, that song is one of my favorite themes in Part 3, alongside Jotaro's theme, so... I guess it's appropriate that they're using it for another crusader. Poor Polnareff, though, because he finally makes his way out of that hotel room, shows up late to Joseph's room, and they don't even care that he's covered in blood. Yeah, they just, it's like, where were you? Yeah, you're late. <laughs> <laughs> then he just faints. Like, and then I think Joseph's like, all right, let's figure out how to get rid of soul sacrifice. <laughs> it's like, th- that's what this guy was doing the whole time. So I think we have a small time skip, like a very small one, where we then see Polnareff in the interrogation room at the police station. And I got confused at first. I think we both got confused because we were asking each other about this the first time we saw this episode in preparation for this review, where the officer says, yeah, there's a dead body in the stall, but we also found a dead boy's body in your room. And I kept thinking, are they talking about the goddamn doll? Like, it's not a it's not a boy. Like, what do they keep saying boy? But then I forgot the front desk guy. He died in the room and he was stuffed in the, the bathroom. So that's who they were talking about, right? Yeah, although he mysteriously disappears out of the shot. Because he, he fell in front of the doorway of the room, right? And then when Polnareff used a silver chariot to slice off the doll's legs, you see the doll end up in that same area. No, you see the doll right before he closes the door and puts the do not disturb sign on. You see the doll drag the body into the bathroom and close the door. Oh, Yeah, I, I noticed okay. that. Like he grabbed it by I think like his head or whatever and dragged him in really fast. And then you get the, the door slamming with the do not disturb sign swinging. Oh, that that's the front door then with a do not disturb. Yeah, so he sign. puts mm-hmm. it. He he puts him in the bathroom and then he goes to the front door. I assume and yeah. puts that sign up there. Okay. But it happens in such rapid succession. Succession, I think, to keep that intensity going for the episode. Okay, that makes sense. So yeah, it was the the dead employee that they were referring to as the boy. Uh, and then actually right before that moment, you get another stand stat for Silver Chariot, although this was previously shown in episode five, Silver Chariot. So I'm not going to go over that again. 
Um, you can just refer back to that episode if you'd like to see those stats. The Speedwagon Foundation rocks up, though, and comes to the rescue for Polnareff during this interrogation. And I just keep thinking they must have a really good legal team to get Polnareff free when he's a murder suspect. <laughs> I'm like, there's no way. Like, I know Joseph says, oh, yeah, they're they're doing their thing to, to get him out of the out of police custody and i'm just thinking what are they doing what could what kind of power does the speedwagon foundation hold where they can just show up to a foreign country and tell them yeah this guy didn't do it i feel like the speedwagon foundation in this universe is kind of like on the level of illuminati where they can just <laughs> operate in the background they probably just gave the officers hush hush money um just for them not to mention anything about what's going on with the stands because that's real that's what's unbeknownst to the world too right yeah and i guess right after that um we have like the final scene of this episode where joseph and avdol decide to see where dio's at and joseph uses hermit purple to access what he calls spirit audio to put together words from different TV shows or programs into a sentence. And essentially that spirit audio warns them that Kakyoin is a traitor. And then they get busted by Dio who shows up on screen and says, yo, Joseph, are you watching me right now? <laughs> and makes the TV fucking explode. I actually, I liked this scene. Um, Cause it's a, a unique, a more unique way to use Joseph's Hermit Purple power. Uh, right. I, I, I wrote. Power. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know. I wrote in my notes. Purple hermit. I got confused for a second. <laughs> well, hermit purple power, and it makes it kind of function almost like a video Ouija board in this scene. And I like there's there's a couple of references that are in the TV channels that kind of flicker by. Um, I think there's one. I don't know if it was purposeful, but the the scene with the one guy in the fedora looks like a scene out of The Godfather. Because that character says, is Michael here? And that makes me think of him referring to Michael Corleone. Uh, and then there are other scenes too. Like one that looks like uh, the TV show The View. And a character that looks like Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. And I was reading too that there's a short blip of a woman that is supposed to resemble gorgeous Irene, which is one of Araki's previous mangas. Um, Irene was like a professional assassin who's able to transform into any type of woman using her makeup power, but instead of killing in cold blood, she uses her abilities for good. So I have a snapshot of what I think is supposed to be gorgeous Irene, and I can put that up in the Discord for anyone who wants to see it. Um, I think it's just another way that David Production is is paying homage to the creator of JoJo by highlighting one of his previous works. And then, yeah, we find out Kakyoin is a traitor again. Again. But, like, like he looks <laughs> fucking weird in the very last shot of the episode. And I can't wait. I know I keep getting excited about, like, the next episode we're going to talk about, but this one in particular because we have one of the most iconic memes and it's just a fucking weird episode and it's just so funny and i can't wait to talk about the kakioin impersonator yeah i remember the first time i watched this cliffhanger i was severely disappointed because i was thinking like come on after all the trust that we put into kakioin at this point he is a mother lover so he wanted to help save jotaro's mother but then we find out he's like a 
a double double agent here, <laughs> and like I, I was just so frustrated. But thankfully, my frustrations were cleared up with episode nine, which we will review next time. But for this time, that brings us to our final thoughts for part three, episode eight, the devil. So, did this episode make the cut for you? <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's a it's not a memorable episode for me. When I think about part 3, I don't immediately think about the devil and this fight in the hotel room, but I am always pleasantly surprised every time I rewatch this episode. I I go into it thinking, okay, like I remember it being pretty good, but then I watch it and I'm like, there's a lot happening. Like this is a fun in your face episode. Not fun for Polnareff obviously, but it's a it's a really good episode to dive into after again kind of the the slow paced boring fights that we had in the previous two episodes and I think it kind of helps set the stage for the absurdity that's to come in the next few episodes again especially with the Kakioin episode um, that's happening next and I just enjoy seeing Polnareff overcome something on his own but also be put in those situations where he gets shit on because as we talked about earlier, he's a cursed Joe bro. So this is just the first foray into that. We're going to get much more of that and oftentimes involving toilets. And I just, I enjoy anytime Polnareff gets a very weird situation or he's placed in a very weird situation and finds an interesting way to overcome it because he's an airhead. He doesn't always do the smartest thing, but he can always overcome his adversity. What about you? Yeah, this episode was quite the bloody spectacle. I think it's my preferred episode over the two horror film vibe episodes we've seen in this consecutive horror film vibe arc, I guess. Uh, Polnareff does get put through the first of his many ringers in part three with this episode. Uh, It's, you know, for being the comic relief of part three, he sure doesn't get his own relief. And I guess alongside that... This episode pretty much highlights that even in a spot like a hotel, which is intended for the group to get their R&R, there really is no rest for the Stardust Crusaders on this journey, and they just have to be constantly vigilant, as will be the case with the next episode, again with Kakuin being sus. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in for another episode of our Stardust Crusaders review series. Let us know what you think about this episode compared to the last two. Are you feeling the same way that we are, that the last two episodes felt a little bit slower, they were a little less exciting, and they just kind of took all of the excitement that we were missing from the last two episodes and dumped it into this one? Or do you feel like this one didn't quite hit the same as other episodes? Because this is just a very unique setting, a very unique fight, a very unique stand user. I mean, everything about it feels a bit different than most of what we get in the stand user of the week formula. But yeah, let us know. Subscribe to Strictly Jojo on your favorite podcast service. Join our Discord to chat with us and to let us know your thoughts on this episode. Follow us on Instagram at the Strictly Series and on Twitter at Strictly Series and check out our website, thestrictlyseries.com. If you'd like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com slash the Strictly Series and tune into Strictly Anime, our other podcast for anime reviews and discussions. All links are in the description. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weeb. To be continued. Okay.